Our mission to empower every person and organization on the planet to achieve more. Trust is at the core of this. And we're taking a principled approach with strong commitments to make sure that our customers can trust digital technology they use. When it comes to privacy, we will ensure your data is private and is under your control. When it comes to compliance, we will manage your data in accordance with the law of the land. We will be transparent about the collection and the uses of data and ensure that all your data is secure. These are the four strong commitments that we will make in everything that we do. Welcome to the Enemy of the Surveillance State, where we discuss news, tips, and open source tools to help you protect your privacy in an age of mass digital surveillance. I am your host, C. Mitchell Shaw, and this week we're going to be discussing browsing the web securely and privately, browsers and extensions I recommend you use, and browsers and extensions that I recommend you avoid using, this week on Enemy of the Surveillance State. So that sound clip at the beginning was from a Microsoft promo on YouTube all about how they stand so strong on their privacy agreement. And that matters since 90% or more of the computers that have ever been purchased on this planet come installed with Microsoft Windows. And then, of course, by default, come with either Microsoft Internet Explorer or the new Microsoft Edge browser. Browsers are nearly synonymous with the web. We use them to access the web, but they can also be used to spy on you and call home reporting on everything you do, sites you visit, searches you make, even what you type. Of course, Microsoft Internet Explorer Edge is the first browser most people see. Now, let's just set aside the fact that many people only ever open that browser once and they use it to download a browser that will actually work. The bottom line is it is still installed on every Windows computer. You can't uninstall it. Doing so breaks other things across the computer. So Microsoft claims that they care about your privacy. They say that also in their Microsoft privacy policy. See, here's the problem. Microsoft is the Internet Explorer, Internet Edge uh, browsers, are pure spyware. They are designed to harvest all of your data. In fact, all of Windows is spyware. If you were to look at their privacy agreement, if you were to look at their uh, the user agreement that you agree to when you install Microsoft products on a computer, or if you bought a computer that already had Microsoft Windows on it, when you set that computer up the first time, you're just going click, 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 I agree, I agree, I agree. Firstborn child, sure, I agree. What you didn't know is that if you were to print that out, it runs some 40,000 words. And like I say, if printed, 110 pages. 
the Microsoft privacy policy begins by saying, your privacy is important to us. So there again is that promise. But then it goes on to address the types of data that they can collect uh, using Windows or other Microsoft products or services. That data includes the user's name, email address, postal address, phone number, passwords, password hence, your age, your sex, as well as other personal information, including, and this is quoting directly from the document, interests and favorites. We collect data about your interests and favorites, such as teams you follow in a sports app, the stocks you track in a finance app, or the favorite cities you add to a weather app. In addition to those you explicitly provide, your interests and favorites may also be inferred or derived from other data we collect. That is a lot of information about users, but it doesn't even end there. Microsoft also collects data on people who may not even use Microsoft products or services. Quote, contacts and relationships. We collect data about your contacts and relationships if you use a Microsoft service to manage contacts or to communicate or interact with other people or organizations. So if you're going on the web, they know your Facebook friends. If you send an email, they know who you emailed. If you're on any type of communication at all using Microsoft products, you have agreed to give them access to the information about your friends and family that you're contacting. Now, that sound clip at the beginning, it was interesting. He begins by talking about your privacy belonging to you and they will protect your privacy. And then he says that when it comes to compliance, they will go by the law of the land. Well, the law of the land in the United States of America is that you clicked, I agree, and gave them access to that data. They can now pretty much do whatever they want to with it. But what about the other data actually stored on the PC? That's covered in the privacy agreement too. Here's a hint. When Microsoft says your privacy is important to us, what they mean is that the company wants to take your privacy from you and use your personal information for its own purposes. The agreement says, quote, Finally, we will access, disclose, and preserve personal data, including your content, such as the content of your emails, other private communications, or files in private folders, when we have a good faith belief that doing so is necessary. They can access, disclose, and preserve your personal data based only on their idea of a good faith belief that doing so is necessary. So you say, well, I'm not using Microsoft, uh, you know, I'm not using Microsoft uh, 10. Uh, you know, I use um, Windows 7 or 8 because I know all about Windows 10, and so I didn't want to use that. Well, in August of 2015, Microsoft rolled all those changes into an update for both Windows 7 and 8, okay? So the only real solution around all of that is to replace Windows with an operating system that respects your privacy, like Linux. But that's for another episode. This week, we're going to stay on point and just cover browsers. So let's talk about the Google Chrome browser. It is the most popular browser out there. This is the one most people fire up Internet Explorer or Edge the first time and go straight over to Google Chrome and download it and get it installed. It is the most popular browser out there, period. But did you catch the full name of the browser? Google Chrome? Like everything else Google gives away for free, it is designed to harvest your data for Google. 
So the Google Chrome browser should completely be off your list given Google's propensity to harvest everything they can get their hands on. Allowing them access to everything that you do in a browser is a bridge too far. Well, how about Opera? Opera used to be a pretty decent browser, but then in 2016, the company was bought out by a Chinese company, and it's undergone a whole lot of changes since then, especially in the area of privacy. The new privacy policy makes that pretty clear. Quote, to collect data automatically, we may use cookies, web beacons, our own data collection tools, or various third-party services, end quote. It goes on from there. And because we are an international company with data centers all over the world, your data may be sent to countries which do not have the same level of data protection as those in the country where you are located. So the Opera browser is giving full access to all of your communications online to a Chinese company that you have no control over, and they can send that data to one of their other data centers anywhere in the world where, again, once it's out of your hands, it's out of your control. Well, how about Safari? Oh, Mitch, I only use I only use Mac, so I use the Safari browser. Documents leaked by Ed Snowden to journalists showed that Apple partnered with the NSA as part of the PRISM program for massive data collection. Now, to be fair, so did Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Yahoo, and others. But since Mac seems to be the alternative of choice for people getting away from Windows, I need to make it clear that Apple is, or at least was, in bed with the surveillance state. And while they made a bunch of mess and big waves by refusing the Department of Justice and FBI demands to undermine the encryption on devices running iOS, it's starting to look like that was just motivated by more of a desire to protect the company's image and market share and less by any actual concern over your privacy. Furthermore, Reports from Forbes and others a couple years ago show that Apple held on to data harvested from the Safari browser long after those users deleted that data, and some of that data was from private browsing, which wasn't supposed to be remembered at all in the first place. Okay, so those are the browsers that I think you should avoid like the plague. But what browsers should you use? First, let's talk about what makes a browser privacy-friendly or not. Is it designed to help the company that made it harvest your data, or is it designed with the end user in mind? Does it make it easy for websites to run scripts that track users, or does it block those scripts by default? Is it built to display ads or web pages? My favorite browser for ease of use and privacy, basic privacy, is the Brave browser. But before we get into Brave, let me give you a little background on two other browsers, Chromium, and Firefox. Like I said earlier, Chrome is a Google product and simply cannot be trusted, but it is based on an open source browser named Chromium. All you science nerds out there, I'm sure you get the joke, but for the rest of you, the metal Chrome, the stuff car bumpers used to be made of and like motorcycle exhaust pipes and stuff are still made of, is created from an element called Chromium. Get it? Chrome is made from Chromium. I love nerd humor. Anyway, the Chromium browser is almost exactly the same as Google's Chrome browser, except without the Google bits for tracking your browsing. So it's faster because it's lighter and doesn't have to do all the heavy lifting involved in spying on you because it doesn't have all that code in there to spy on you. It's just the open source part of the Chrome browser. 
Then there's the world's first open source browser, Firefox. The story behind Firefox is pretty cool. In 1998, Microsoft's Internet Explorer was the dominant browser. Nets, a company called Netscape offered their browser, Navigator, Netscape Navigator, but was having a lot of trouble selling it. After all, when I buy a computer, it's already got Windows on it. It's already got Internet Explorer. It's free as in price. Netscape's main business was in servers, and the company was afraid that if Microsoft continued its dominance, it could leverage that power to have control over the HTML and HTTP standards that the web depends on, according to Eric Raymond. Uh, Eric Raymond wrote a paper on the success of the open source software model. His paper named The Cathedral and the Bazaar, uh, there's a link to that in the show notes, so be sure to check that out, was read by someone in senior, senior management at Netscape, and because of that, they made the decision to decide to release the source code of the Navigator browser and begin offering it for free. So in other words, the browser was no longer their product. The source code of the browser was their product. So Netscape then formed the Mozilla trilogy of companies and organizations that eventually produced the Firefox browser. Because of the success of Firefox, other open source browsers soon followed, like Chromium, from which Google builds Chrome. In 2005, Brendan Eich, who had already served as chief architect, lead technologist, and as a member of the board of directors for Mozilla, besides creating the JavaScript, which powers most of the web, uh, he became Mozilla's chief technology officer. He was promoted again in March of 2014, this time to CEO of the corporation. While many were pleased with his elevation to the helm, others reacted by resigning from the board of directors. Some even went so far as to tweet to homosexual activists that in 2008, Ike had donated to California's Proposition 8 ballot initiative to ban same-sex marriage in his state. So here's the skinny on that. He took $1,000 of his own money. It wasn't Firefox money. It wasn't Mozilla money. It was 1000 of his own dollars that he donated to support Proposition 8 to ban same-sex marriage and define marriage as being between one man and one woman. Now, regardless of where you fall on that issue, it's you got to remember this. This was around the same time that candidate Hillary Clinton and candidate Barack Obama were contending for the DNC nomination, and they both said the same thing. Marriage is, quote, between one man and one woman. YouTube is filled with videos of them saying that at the time, around 2008. So it wasn't as though Eric or Ike, uh, Brendan Ike was a radical. Nonetheless, those homosexual activists launched a campaign of shame, fear, and intimidation with websites saying that they would block access to Firefox unless Ike were to resign. So 10 days after he was promoted, he left the company that he helped start and build. Two years later, Ike launched Brave as a reinvention of the web browser. Instead of basing it on Firefox, he built it from Chromium. He decided to fix a couple of problems by striking a balance between the web-based advertising model and the privacy model. The current model for web-based advertising involves a conflict between users and providers. See, users access websites for free uh, and those websites make their profits harvesting the data of those users and selling it for targeted advertising. 
So what most people do at some point in their lives is they'll install something like Adblock Plus to block all ads from showing on the website. Now, that's a decent, quick solution, but it creates another problem or a couple of more problems. First, not seeing the ad that's being targeted to you because all it's doing is breaking that from displaying on your page does not mean that you're not being tracked. It doesn't mean that your browsing history, email contents, web searches, etc., are not being harvested. It just means that the website can't profit from the data that they harvested from you. So they take your data, they try to serve you an ad, but now your browser just doesn't display the ad. On that note, the second reason ad blocking is not a permanent solution to the broken model of web-based advertising is that if website owners can't profit from their websites, they have no reason to have those websites. Capitalism really does make the world go round and is not an evil thing. These companies, that they put a lot of money into developing these websites. They've got employees, they've got bandwidth, they've got office space, they've got a lot of expenses, and they need to make a profit. So news sites, search engines, social networks, and just a wide range of other free web services have to make money on advertising or they can't stay free. The alternative would be to move to a subscription-based model where users pay to visit those sites. And we're already seeing that with a lot of news sites. For instance, now the New York Times, uh, if you're looking at an article on there that's more than a couple of days old, or the Wall Street Journal, if you're looking at an article on there that's more than a couple of days old, it's probably already back behind a paywall. And unless you're a subscriber, you really can't see that. Okay, so most users want a web that's free as in price. So Brave, uh, Ike's new browser that I've been using now for a few years, allows you to opt into ads that do not track you or allow others to track you. No data harvesting. Instead, the browsers just reach out and draw in ads that would be of interest to you. So that information is stored locally on your machine and your browser from your machine reaches out to pull in ads that would be interest to you, okay? So since the websites can still profit from that advertising, the web can stay free as to price. And since users maintain their privacy, they would remain free also as to liberty. It's a classic win-win situation, and it works. Users who choose to enable ads can reward the sites they visit without sacrificing their privacy. And those who want to go even further to protect their privacy even more can go into the settings and lock Brave down even tighter. So before moving on, let's recap. Brave, Firefox, and Chromium are decent browsers. Internet Explorer, Opera, Chrome, and Safari are lousy browsers where your privacy is concerned. Okay, with the addition of browser add-ons or extensions, Firefox and Chromium can be very privacy-friendly. I recommend Brave, but if you prefer one of the others, I recommend installing the HTTPS Everywhere add-on from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. EFF is an organization dedicated to protecting online rights, including privacy, and they have created this HTTPS Everywhere add-on for both Chrome slash Chromium and Firefox. HTTPS Everywhere forces a secure encrypted connection to any site that offers it and makes you aware of those that don't offer that secure encrypted connection. EFF also offers their Privacy Badger extension that helps stop tracking. Both of those extensions, like I say, are available for both Chrome slash Chromium and Firefox, 
and I'll have some notes uh, in the, I'll have links to those in the show notes, so be sure to check that out. Also, there's the NoScript add-on. Now, NoScript breaks all of the scripts that could be used to identify and track you. Most of this stuff, or at least some iteration of this stuff, is already baked into Brave, but if you prefer to use Firefox or Chromium, you can just pull in these add-ons, these um, extensions, and install them. And those solutions are more than good enough to protect you against most any corporate surveillance. But what if you need even more protection? What if you need to be able to visit a site and be sure that no one can track you there? Say you're in a country with an oppressive government, besides the United States, and you need to learn more about the resistance movement in your area. Or imagine any of a thousand other good reasons why you might need to know that even the NSA or the FBI or the CIA can't learn that you were the one who visited a particular site. That is where the Tor browser comes in. Tor, which used to stand for The Onion Router because it's about layers of encryption and layers of IP address spoofing, uh, so layers like an onion if you get the idea. Uh, Tor, basically the way it works is this. When you visit the web right now using a normal browser, Firefox, Chrome, Chromium, Internet Explorer, it doesn't matter. You go to the internet and you type in www.cocacola.com or facebook.com. Your computer reaches out to the internet, resolves that address to the actual address of that website, and connects you to that website's servers. Using Tor, what happens is completely different. Using Tor, what winds up happening is that you connect First, Tor lies about your IP address because your IP address can be used to identify you. So Tor gives it a different IP address. than It's a real IP address somewhere in the world. It's probably that of a computer that's been in a landfill for five years now. It might be your neighbor's IP address. It doesn't matter. It's just not your IP address. So it lies to the internet about your IP address and encrypts your traffic. It doesn't then send that to Facebook.com or Coca-Cola.com. It sends it to another Tor node, usually operated by a, a library somewhere in the world or a volunteer somewhere in the world that just operates a Tor node. So the entrance node then receives your traffic, which is decrypted so that the node can receive it. Then... It sends it out again, again, encrypting it and lying about your IP address a second time with a brand new IP address. This happens at least four or five times before you drop out onto the surface web and wind up at facebook.com or coca-cola.com. So it is so good that not even the operator of the site, so a site administrator sitting at Coca-Cola watching their web traffic cannot know where you came from. It looks like you're in Bangladesh or France or Italy or Germany. They have no idea who you are or where you're coming in from. Uh, there will be a link also in the show notes for the Tor browser. It's pretty self-explanatory, but you know, watch some videos on it. Educate yourself on how to use it. One caveat, if you identify yourself by logging into something using your login credentials, Tor will be completely worthless to you. You've just flashed them your ID card. You just gave them your social security number. They know exactly who you are. So if you log into Facebook using the Tor browser and then pop over to something else because you needed to surf on this particular site that you needed to be secure, you are no longer secure. You've identified yourself. You'll need to completely close out the Tor browser, wait a couple of minutes, 
log back in, and then visit the site that you need to visit securely and privately. So there are a couple of tips you need to learn there, and there are some great videos online for showing you how to do that, and I'll be covering some of that in subsequent uh, episodes of the show. Now, for the deepest, best privacy available, there is TAILS. TAILS used to stand for the Amnesic Incognito Live System. Now it just, it, they still style it as TAILS, but it doesn't really stand for anything. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. Be sure to grab that and take a look at it. This is a live Linux distribution. Linux is an operating system like Mac or Windows, but built entirely on open source software. It's all I run on all of my machines, one version of, of Linux or another. Tails is a Linux distribution or distro uh, that is designed not to be installed on a computer. You install this to a USB stick and you boot your machine from the USB stick. Here's what it does. It uses Tor by default, okay? And it encrypts everything, all of the traffic coming and going from your computer. And because it's not installed on your computer and it doesn't touch your hard drive, it runs in RAM. What it does is it sends, it asks itself the question constantly, uh, every few milliseconds, is the USB connected? Is the USB connected? Is the USB connected? As long as the answer is yes, it just keeps running in RAM. If the answer to that is no, because you've pulled the USB stick out of the slot, then the first thing it does is wipe any evidence that it was ever on your computer. It wipes your RAM, and then it shuts down the computer. There is no evidence that you were ever there. This is the operating system that Ed Snowden used when he communicated with journalists making his revelations about what the NSA was doing. It is that good. So if you try out Tails, if you pop down to the show notes and, and download that and install it and poke around on it for a while and try it out and see what you think of it, you'll get a taste of Linux. And be sure to tune in next week to hear about other Linux distributions that I recommend as replacements for Windows or Mac for those who want to do all they can to protect their privacy. Until next week... The steps above should take you a lot farther down the path of protecting your privacy unless you are a specific target of one of the three-letter agencies. If you're enjoying Enemy of the Surveillance State, be sure to hit the subscribe button or the follow button so you never miss an episode. And share this podcast with friends and family. Privacy is a lot more fun when you share it. Enemy of the Surveillance State is written, produced, and hosted by me, C. Mitchell Shaw, using all open source software. Original music for the show was composed and recorded by Mike Levitt. See the show notes for information about him. This has been Enemy of the Surveillance State. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>